Hebrews chapter 11. Let's do a quick recap, if we may. Verse 1, coming off of 10 chapters of solid, deep, heavy doctrine. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then we saw example after example of a living faith. We saw the faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, and the faith of Abraham. Now look down at verse 13. You expect them to say, and because they were faithful, they got to see the promises. But that's not what it says at all. All these, what? Died in faith. Well, that's not very encouraging. They died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And right off the bat, as this preacher is writing this letter to this little uh, Jewish Christian church, a bunch of converted Jews, most likely in Rome, who has started to, to back away and drift from the faith, right off the bat he says, your faith is not contingent upon your circumstances. Do we need to hear that? I see all the t-shirts of faith. I see all the devotionals of faith. You can go into the Dollar General and they've got stacks of devotionals, you know, journals, faith, 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 faith. Faith in what? And so much of even our radio stations talk about faith in circumstances. Or faith being how we feel. And it is clear that faith in Scripture is based upon a person and a promise. It is based upon an object. Our faith is only as good as our object. And so right off the bat, it's kind of like he's given this church a reality check. Hey, church, things may not get better. They probably won't. He's going to say in the next chapter, you, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood Yet. Now why did he have to put yet? And so we're looking in this going, oh, this is meant to be encouraging. But it is. Because you know what? The faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah, the faith of Abraham, that encourages me. Why? Because these men weren't perfect. But by God's grace, their faith endured. And their faith endured, and they never saw the promise. As the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen more than they will ever see. Right? They look forward. They look forward in a mist, you might say. We look back with concrete evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on that day, he purchased a bride. And he who began a good work in us will complete it. And if he has come once, and he has, he will return for his church. It's almost like this preacher is saying, if you look at these guys, and they had faith, how much more should we be faithful? And we also have the Word of God. Holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative. And might we add sufficient. Sufficient for life and godliness. And so as we get back into this, I think we have to remember, he's not whitewashing anything. He's not saying our circumstances are going to get better. In fact, who's emperor at the time? You remember? Nero. You think we complain about our, our uh, governors? Nero. 
It's going to get worse. All these died in faith. And then he jumps back in. He gives us Abraham again. And then he gives us the example of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And you're like, yeah, but, but I'm no Abraham. I'm no Isaac. I'm no Moses. And he says, okay, let me give you another one. How about Rahab? Okay, now we're getting somewhere. I'm more like Rahab. And we see the faith of Rahab. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that brought us to verse 32. And if you've been with us during this series, you know that we've been in verse 32 a long time. The text for today is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32f. I bet you didn't know there was letters in single verses. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad we slowed down at verse 32. Because when was the last time you heard a robust exposition on Jephthah or Barak? You know, it was helpful to look at these men because some of them were so thoroughly flawed and yet God still used them. And we didn't, like the preacher, we didn't whitewash their sin, but we did highlight God's faithfulness in them. And that's the best way to say it. It's not like they had some intrinsic faith. I remember I used to work with a, a fella. He was an agnostic guy, and I was witnessing to him, and, and he, he said to me one day, he goes, you know, I, I wish, I just wish I had a bigger faith, a faith like yours. And it sounded so spiritual. It, it sounded like he was, he was admiring something that I had, and, and, and if he only had that, he could believe like I believe, and it was all a smokescreen. Because faith is not something I have, and it's certainly not something I gave God. And I explained that to him, and he wanted to change the subject. <laughs> he was using it as a smokescreen to say, I don't want to believe. Because faith requires following. And that's what we see here. Gideon, Barak, Jephthah. We saw that through God's gift of faith, God's gift of persevering and preserving faith, they were able to, what? Conquer kingdoms. Look at the text. Shut the mouths of lions, escape the edge of the sword, and from weakness were made strong. I want to camp on that just a moment as we get going. From weakness were made strong. I think that's really what the preacher wants this little church to understand. Let, let's set aside shutting the mouths of lions, sending foreign armies to flight. Let's focus on from weakness were made strong. Understanding what Christ has done on the cross and is doing now in interceding for His church, we can be confident that through our weakness, God can make us strong. God can do that which we don't intrinsically bring to the table. You think about it. Paul, Saul, as great a man as he was, was never so great until God struck him blind and saved him. Until he gave him a thorn in the flesh. And it was through his weakness that he was able to do Amazing feats of spiritual strength. Amazing feats of endurance. Getting stoned and living and putting his chin to the wind and going on to the next town. Those are the kind of things that God does. And He doesn't do them in the proud. He does them in the weak. 
And so this preacher is encouraging them, not based on who they are in and of themselves, but who they have become in Jesus Christ. And if they will understand this, and understand that God will complete and will fulfill His promises, He will see us through, watch this, no matter what. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the faith that God has given you, that has granted you eternal life, will also persevere you in this life? Say it with me. No matter what. I don't think we really believe that. I think we read these great heroes in the faith and we say, well, yeah, I know God can strengthen my faith. I know I can do things that I normally wouldn't do, but I can't do that. And we believe a lie. Because then we believe that person is somehow greater, and that's why they were able to do that, and we rob glory from God. Gideon was able to do that because of God. Jephthah was able to do that amid rejection because of God. And so that brings us to our next example. We've been looking at different facets of faith. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of... Who's the next one? David. Like, oh, this is an easy one. You know? We've heard about it in equipping hour. We all know of David. This is a piece of cake. Is it? Sometimes it's the familiarity can't say that, that breeds the contempt, right? Sometimes it's that which is so known to us that makes us close our ears as to what's really there. So we're going to have to be very, very diligent to listen and listen well this morning that there's something about David. There's something about David's faith that we need to understand that we, like this first century church, going into difficult times, need to know What is it about David's faith that that God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through this preacher, wants me to know? And I can't be familiar with it. I I have to set it aside. I have to to say, teach me. Teach me. What don't I know? We saw Gideon's faith feared less when it depended upon God more. That was a great lesson. We saw Jephthah His faith was confident in rejection. We saw Barak, his faith, well, it just showed up, right? And Samson, for all his flaws, his faith was fearless. But what is it about David? Our mind immediately goes to Goliath, right? I bet this is going to be about battling our giants, right? Run me out of town if I do that, okay? What is it about David's faith that is meant to strengthen ours? Well, I think verses 33 and 34 actually describe David more than they do any other character. Think about it. Certainly David conquered kingdoms, right? United and conquered kingdoms. He bested the Philistines, performed acts of righteousness. He served the Lord and His people He is still regarded as the greatest king of Israel. Whose star is on the Israeli flag? That's David's. He obtained promises. He he obtained becoming king of Israel. And of course, we are recipients of the Davidic covenant in our Lord Jesus Christ. He shut the mouths of lions and bears. Oh my, right? He escaped the edge of the sword. We automatically go to the enemy, but what about his father-in-law, Saul? He escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, he was made strong. He became mighty in war, and he put foreign armies to flight. I, I think this is almost like a biography about David. And Gideon and Barak and Jephthah, they kind of get to ride on the coattails. But if you had to pin me down, and I think you would agree... If there's one phrase that encapsulates David's faith more than anything else, what is it? He was a man after God's own heart. 
that, you know, that's one of those things that you want it at the bottom of a portrait, right? If it was said about you at your funeral and put on your gravestone, you are a man or a woman after God's own heart, and it wasn't a title you gave yourself, could there be anything better? I don't think so. I can't think of anything better. And yet, we're so familiar with the phrase, we don't often really stop to think about what it means. The phrase comes within the context of Saul having his kingdom torn from him. You don't need to turn there, but write down 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Samuel is speaking to Saul, and he says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul is contrasted with David. Saul was disobedient, while David is called a man after God's own heart. Whatever this phrase means, it means that David's faith showed itself in a heart that mirrored God's. If God's heart is described one way, whatever that is, David had the same kind of heart. And I think as we segue into David's faith, we need to understand this phrase, because this is what ties everything together, right? One's heart in the Old Testament, and it's a transliteration, because most of the time when we, we translate it heart, the Hebrews like to use bowels, but it's the same thing. It's the, it's the seat and it's the center of, of emotion, of who we are. It's what drives a man. It's where his passions lie. It's why he lives. What is God's heart like? What drives God? Where do God's passions lie? Simply put, God is passionate for His own glory. God is passionate for His own glory. And as the ruler of the universe, as the only perfection, only holy, only all-powerful, only all-good, that is not only good, but it is right that God be passionate about His own glory. We are benefactors of God's glory. And God is passionate about His glory. He even created the universe so that He might display His glory to creation that would not otherwise see it were they not created. We were created for worship to bring God glory. And so God's heart is for His own glory. And He's glorified in everything. He is glorified in His mercy. We see that at the cross. But He is also glorified in justice. We see that at the cross. God is glorified in everything. Maybe not in a narrow sense, in the immediate term of of the immediate effects of evil, but in the big picture, that evil will be brought to justice and God is glorified. Everything happens for God's glory. And so God's heart is for His own glory. And so is David's. And that's what it means. David's heart was for God's glory. David was driven by God's glory. His passions were to make God look good, to use a modern-day phrase. He lived, when he was acting rightly, to make God look good, to bring the most glory to God. Saul lived for his own glory. And that's the contrast. The Apostle Paul writes in Acts 13, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. The son of David was also passionate about God's glory, wasn't he? 
Not my will be done, but thine. I have come and I have done, I have brought you glory. And that's exactly the kind of faith we need. This is the kind of faith that hits bedrock, that if we get this right, what drives us, what, pa- what passions uh, you know, fuel us, this is what will change our faith. Our faith won't be in reaction in hopes that circumstances get better around the corner. Our faith will be fueled by a passion for God. And so therefore we take steps. We swing for the fences. We take risks trusting that God, who is in control, will honor what is right because it brought Him glory. You see where I'm going with this? That's why David was a grip-it-and-rip-it kind of guy. You know what I mean by that? Some of you golfers out there, there's the guy who's been trained, he's taken years and years of lessons, and he gets up and methodically he goes through each step of his swing. And then there's a few guys out there that are just naturally good. Their swing may not be perfect. They may not make all the right connections. But they're grip it and rip it kind of guys. And for some reason, when they connect, and it's more often than not, I think out of confidence, it's amazing. David's confidence was in the Lord. And so, you know, no one... No one got through to him that he was short. No one got through to him that he was young or inexperienced or he couldn't do that. It didn't cross his mind. Because if the Ephesians 2.10 opportunity was there, he was taking it. And he was trusting that God would make it a 350-yard drive. Now, I want that kind of faith. Do you all want that kind of faith? That's not a power of positive thinking kind of faith. That's not an unrealistic kind of faith. That's not, that's not a, a, a stupid kind of faith. That is the kind of faith that is anchored in God's will. Therefore, the risks we take are not stupid or ignorant, but they're what pleases God. The risks are within the bounds of what He wants us to take, and the results are are left up to him. You know, in seminary, John Piper was advised to pick a great man of faith to spend a life studying. He chose Jonathan Edwards, which is certainly a good choice. But I would say there's enough ink here on David that makes him, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, the best of all choices. I mean, he's right up there with the Apostle Paul, maybe even more because we hear so much of David's heart in the Psalms, right? And so it's like, it's, you can read the narratives, you can read the biographies, and then it's almost like you can, you can turn over to the Psalms and say, but how did he feel? How did he, what was the pain he was going through? And in those Psalms, we don't have just this perfect, sterling, you know, he always responded correctly. But we do see him come around after complaining over and over again. Why? He's consumed with God's glory. Our timeless truth is that the church is to emulate faith that is driven by a passion for God's glory. So let's spend just a few minutes studying him. I mean, it's going to be the tip of the iceberg with as much text as there is on David. But let me set him in time. After the Exodus, so that's 1446, and then the conquest, 1406 B.C., we have a period of the judges from 1380 to 1050 B.C. These 350-ish years are characterized by the statement, and everyone did what was, what? Right in their own eyes. It's said a couple of times, and you're like, wow, not, not, a, great, uh, not a great period of history. The last judge was a faithful man born to a woman who pledged to give her son to the Lord if she would grant him one. His name was Samuel. He was the last judge. And he was a kingmaker. But the first one would not be of God's own choosing. Let me read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have to say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done and 
since the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are going to do to you also. And who becomes the first king? Remember? Tall Saul. Tall Saul. He was handsome, handsome, and he was taller than anyone else. Said he was head and shoulders. Saul the Benjamite. And as we learned a couple weeks ago, when they started screaming, long live the king, they couldn't find him because he was hiding among the baggage. And that is the times in which David comes on the scene. But what about David specifically? Where does he come from? Well, in order to answer that question, we too have to go back about 350 years. Time of the Exodus, you'll remember another woman of faith, Rahab the harlot, right? Well, Rahab believes, helps the spies, becomes grafted into Israel, and marries a bit of royalty, a guy named Salmon. And Rahab and Salmon have a son named Boaz. And Boaz marries a widow, a Moabite widow, whose name was what? Ruth. Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has eight boys. And the runt of the litter is David. And what's so interesting is that Israel's greatest king has got Gentile blood running through his veins with at least two ancestors. You think that's not a picture of God's grace? So David comes on the scene because Saul is rejected and Samuel is told by God, go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not yet the capital of Israel. So he says, go to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread, and I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. All right. Samuel's excited. Tall Saul has not done a great job. We get to start fresh. And he goes through. Jesse gets all of his boys, save one there. And you remember what happens? They all pass in front of Samuel. Samuel's like, yeah, this one looks good. He can bench 300. This is my man. God says, nope, not him. Next, no, not him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. God loves short people. Amen? (laughs) Because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the... You remember what it says? The heart. You think that's by coincidence? Not at all. Samuel's looking as man sees. Whew, that guy's strapping. That guy can run a 440. Look at him, man. He's good looking. This guy looks like a leader. No, 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 no. Seven times, no. Samuel's like, did I make a, a wasted trip? Verse 11, are these all the children? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. Almost like, well, yeah, there's another one, but... I mean, he truly is the runt of the litter. And behold, he is tending the sheep. Samuel says, well, get him, for we will not sit down. They're there for a meal until he arrives. Apparently, David wasn't allowed to come to this big meal. I mean, Samuel was a big, he was a big guest, okay? David wasn't allowed to come because, well, someone's got to take care of the animals, right? Well, who does it fall to, little brothers out there? The little brothers, right? Verse 12, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. You think God is not tender the way he writes? In the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of a king who has rejected God and a people have rejected him, God gives us just a glimpse as to what this boy looks like, and it's not anything like what you would expect out of a warrior. He's ruddy. He's reddish. Beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. This little church made up of converted Jews knows this story. They know David was small. They know he was the youngest. They know he was insignificant. But they also knew their Bibles. And I'll promise you, they remembered when it said the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from what? From this day forward. How often does that happen in the Old Testament? It doesn't. It doesn't. The Spirit of the Lord came upon someone for a particular purpose at a particular time. But David, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon him from that day forward. As a Christian in the first century, as a Christian now in Metro Bible, I'm reading this and I'm like, we're like David. We have the Holy Spirit. We are sealed and indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Other than David, you've got more longevity with the Holy Spirit than any other character in the Old Testament. Why should we have that sort of faith? And God uses the weak to shame the strong, right? David was weak. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And so David starts his service to the Lord, his Spirit-empowered service to the Lord with a God-glorifying faith as a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? And it's easy to gloss over that and run to the Goliath narrative. But we're not going to do that. We're going to see David's faith first as a shepherd. You think about it. Of all the occupations, a shepherd is the one who must constantly be caring for others, others that he does not even own at the expense of his own care. A Palestinian shepherd is a -a 24-hour-a-day job. Each sheep is touched twice a day to ensure that there is no injury or, or illness. He must stay awake many times at night. He is outside in the freezing cold. Gary Richmond says in his book, All God's Creatures, and he relates how zookeepers consider taking care of sheep as punishment. Unlike the exotic animals, leopard, rhino, gorillas, and snakes, sheep seem to have one value, their willingness to subject themselves to eight hours of unsupervised children. They're not beasts of burden. They fulfill no function, and they have no defense mechanisms. And we're sheep, aren't we? And God takes a young, weak, small shepherd to shepherd the people of Israel. Think about God glorifying faith as a shepherd. Not only did he have to endure discomfort, but he had to fight off wild animals. And David trusted God so much so that he was willing to go toe-to-toe with a lion and a bear, with no thought of his own welfare, but just simply to protect his father's sheep. Listen to him as he talks to King Saul. Your servant was tending your father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb from the flock. I went out after him. See, we have a tendency to think that he was attacked. He wasn't attacked. A lion or a bear came, grabbed the sheep, and he's like, uh-uh, that's mine. And he went after him. I rescued it from his mouth, and when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I think the picture here is that barehanded, David knocks out, kills a wild beast. Forget the feet of... Sh- the, 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 the feat of strength there. 
How was he able to do this? Why, wouldn't, why wasn't he terrified? I'll tell you why. Because as a man empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, God-glorifying faith rests in two particular facts about the object of their faith. God is both sovereign and God is good. If God has ordained this event, then He is in control of the event. And if He has ordained this event, then He is good. He is bringing about good for David. He's either going to grant him success, see him through, He's going to shape him through the particular act, or He's going to take him home. But God is not bad. And so David could act without fear, with almost reckless abandon, knowing that he could not die a moment before his time, and that God knew this was going to happen, in fact, ordained it. David only had to worry about one thing. What was it? What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is not to run. You think this might resonate with this first century church? What were they doing? Ooh, I don't know about this persecution. I don't know if we should go to church anymore. It's not safe. Do not forsake the assembling together. I don't know that we should hold near to this doctor. We ought to stick our fingers on our ears because the more I know, the more I'll have to grow, and I don't really like that. David, the grip it and rip it kind of guy, is chasing bears and knocking them out. It's like the first MMA. You know what else I think came to mind in this first century church? Just like with us, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What is this? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. David's God-glorifying faith was not in and of himself. It's because he believed that God was sovereign, God was good, and God was with him. What about as a soldier? What about David's faith as a soldier? Well, again, everyone remembers the famous story of David and Goliath, but do you remember the first question David asked when he comes upon the scene? 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26 What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Don't overlook the phrase, this uncircumcised Philistine. Okay? David is not winning points with the Philistine community right now. All right? He's not making inroads with them, thinking, well, if they like me, somehow they're going to like God. My point is this. He has no problem calling the Philistine culture a debased culture because he saw what Goliath was doing as taunting God. You taunt God's people. You mock God's people. They are inextricably linked to Yahweh because they are a covenant people. How dare you mock God? I don't care how tall you are. And so right off the bat, he calls it like it is. How dare you shame the name of God? Nehemiah did the same thing. He said, how can Jerusalem have its gates and walls broken down with fire? We need to take away the reproach, meaning take away God's shame. Why would God be shamed about gates broken down with fire and walls that were falling apart? Because Jerusalem was the city of God. We don't think this way in America, do we? We don't think this way as Westerners. But you see, the Hebrews understood that God owns everything, and He especially owns His people his land, his things, his word. And he didn't care who it was that was mocking God's things. He was mocking God. And so without any fear, he's willing to go out on this field. He says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. He makes the connection there. 
This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands." God will use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I'm willing to go toe-to-toe with you, just like I did with the lion or the bear or anyone that comes after what is God's. Are you seeing? It's a different way to look at faith here, but it's really, really helpful. Normally we say, well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have faith. You just gotta kind of, you know, build it up. No! David doesn't take time to do that. Why? He's consumed with God's glory. He's consumed with it. He's driven by it. He doesn't think about how it might affect him. He's 150 pounds soaking wet, and he's going up against a nine-foot giant with iron. He's got rocks. All right, it's 2022. I get my one Braveheart example, okay? I haven't used this one before, so. You remember when the royal Robert the Bruce was just, he was enamored with William Wallace and his passion. And he says, he fights not for land or title. He believes in what he's fighting for. He's not even a knight. That encapsulates it right there. David's no one. He's not royal. He's not a blue blood. He hasn't been trained. Why does he fight with such passion? Because he believes it. He believes it. And this Hebrew church has deliberately, deliberately become passionate about their own security and their own safety and their own protection and their own reputation. They deliberately replaced a passion for God's glory with a passion to be able to hold on to what they have. And you know what? They're negotiating with a terrorist. Satan is a terrorist. He says, well, if you just do this, if you just shut your mouth, if you quit giving the gospel, if you quit going to church, if you quit studying your Bible, it'll all be okay. I won't kill you. The world won't reject you. No, you're just hoping that they won't eat you until last. He says, God says, no, fight for what you believe. We also saw God's, God, God's faith in David when he was a soldier in going into battle. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will I win? It's like, God, you've seen the movie. I love that. How can he say that? Because God not only exists outside of time, God is the author of time. God not only orchestrates every detail, every slash of the sword, but he orchestrates the muscles in David's arm, the accuracy in his eye, everything. So, So David doesn't ask, tell me what to do. He says, tell me. Do you want me to fight this battle? Will I win? That's God-glorifying faith. God, he's like saying, God, do you want to win this battle? Are you going to win this battle? If so, do you want to use me? What about David's faith in family relationships? Okay, now, Rod, you're getting to my kitchen. You think you've got problems with in-laws? Whoo! David had problems with in-laws. Though Saul had tried to assassinate him multiple times and David had opportunities to kill him, David would not do it. He would not raise his hand, you remember what the phrase is? Against the Lord's anointed. God's anointed him. If God wants to take him out, and God has said he will take him out, he'll do it at his timing. If this is a thorn in my flesh, God has put it there 
for my shaping, for my desperate dependence. 1 Samuel 24.10, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. What about God-glorifying faith when your own friends completely turn against you? One of my favorite texts is 1 Samuel chapter 30. David is in Philistine territory. He's living there in a town of Ziklag. He's making raids. He and his men are out fighting. While he's out fighting, the Amalekites, bad guys, okay, they come in, they burn the town, they take the women, the children, they take everything. David and his army gets back, and they just lose it. I mean, there, there, there's no phones or internets or anyone telling them what happened. They just know the place has been wiped out and everyone they love is gone. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David was distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered because of their sons and daughters. You know what David did? You know what a God-glorifying faith does? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself. He hit his knees and he prayed. And he says, should I, overtake, should, should I pursue this band? Will I overtake them? And God says, pursue them, for you will surely overtake them. And David slaughtered them from the twilight until evening of the next day. What about David the worshiper? He brings the ark to Jerusalem. And he's so filled with passion for God's glory that he's dancing in an ephod. And his wife thought him a fool. She said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself in the eyes of his servants, in the eyes of his servants' maids, as one of the foolish one who shamelessly uncovers himself. I don't know about you, but if anyone could take me out at the knees, it would be my wife. Okay? If anyone could make me change my behavior, could take out my confidence, it would be my spouse. We know that, right? This is why so many men are so passive. Because they care way too much what their spouse thinks instead of what God thinks. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. Can I get an amen there? Amen. He didn't care what people thought. He worshipped. What about when he sinned and was confronted? When Nathan confronted him? Remember what he said? I have sinned before the Lord. Psalm 89, against you and you alone have I sinned. He, he's not saying he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or against the country. What he's saying is in comparison, God, you are so holy and so good and you've done nothing but great to me. My sin before you is so much worse against you it's as if you and you alone have I sinned. But ultimately, his God-glorifying faith, his passion for God's glory, showed it in a delight for the Lord. And this would be worthy of homework this week. David, more than any other man in the Bible, seems to have a faith that has great joy and delight in who God is. Oh, how I love thy law. How I love thy word. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 35, It shall exult in His salvation. Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 30, Thou hast turned my mourning into dancing. Psalm 27.4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Let me leave us with two minutes of practical. It's really easy to default to, 
Yeah, but that's David. I mean, that's, that's David. This great shepherd, musician, warrior. He, he had 30 mighty men, all bigger, smarter, faster, and he could best every single one of them. I think it helps understand David was the small shepherd boy. The run of the litter. The only difference was the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the faith that God gave him used the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And David had to make a choice every single time. When the lion or the bear came up, he had to make a choice. And the temptation that came to mind is, why would I want to risk myself over a couple of sheep? It's not my fault. When the freeze would set in, why do I want to stay out here? I could be home in my warm bed. No one would know. They'll be here in the morning. Why should I risk death and fight a great soldier? Why wouldn't I just adjust my behavior when my own wife mocks me? He had the same temptations we do every single time they crossed his mind. I'll promise you. But his passions for the Lord's glory were so engaged and so inflamed, it was but a fleeting second. And he chose to do the right thing. If God is real, and he is, and if God has saved us, and he has, what drives you? What compels you? Where do your passions lie? What does your heart look like? I want us as a body not to wait until difficulties really come. There's an exercise that David used that we can use now to have a God-glorifying faith. When you are faced with a decision, large or small, ask yourself the question, which one would bring God the most glory? To stay and fight or to run? To stay up at night or to sleep? To worship God and honor Him or to please man? To defend my Lord Jesus Christ or to keep silent? If you will ask yourself this question when that temptation arises, the decision comes quickly and the passion fuels the action. And that's what we have in David. Mark 8.35 Nothing else matters. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you find yourself defaulting to comfort, to protection, to protection of things, to reputation, if you find yourself like Saul, seeking your own glory, start to answer the other way. What would bring God the most glory? And then grip it and rip it.